Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskagan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory, on the banks of the Kasiskasa-Wanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today, again, for part two on this uh, this this podcast series, I suppose it's what it's turned into, on, on corruption in the Edmonton Police Service, is how we frame the first one, is an independent journalist and host of the Is This For Real podcast, Omar Salafu. Omar, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Duncan. So... If you haven't yet, uh, I would recommend uh, listening to the first podcast. It's relatively tight, 45, 50 minutes that establishes the cast of characters, you know, the stakes, how we got to the point where Detective Dan Behills was investigating Abdullah Shah for three years. Nothing happened. And then he set his policing career on fire by leaking his entire investigation folder, his entire packet of files, 64 gigabytes worth of stuff to Janice Johnson. And uh, all the while uh, going on the record with Janice Johnson and in those things, alleging, you know, corruption within the EPS, uh, protecting Abdullah Shah. You know, nothing has been done since these articles have been released. And that's, um, I don't know, I do want to get into the into part four, because I think part four, the fourth article by Janice Johnson, I think is the wildest. But what jumps out at you, uh, Omar, about just how little impact these stories seem to have had on Edmonton, considering what's being alleged. Yeah, I guess it's kind of strange, but in some ways I feel like it's a little bit par for the course. Um, what really kind of gets at me is, is like you said, there's, there's a lot of allegations being made. It's, it's quite a long feature. I believe it's like, yeah, Six six part feature essentially with like more follow up stories, and yeah, it doesn't seem like um, outside of people kind of pointing at the judicial process or whatever other internal um, disciplinary processes still have to take place. Outside of people pointing towards that as you know somehow an answer to all these allegations and questions, there hasn't been much of a reaction. And when I say much of a reaction, I'm talking about. Um, Local politicians. I'm talking about our new mayor, uh, Amarjeet Sohi. Um, a lot of other people who are, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, I, I hate to use this term, but it's applicable here. Influencers um, or people who with influence in this city and power. The police commission, uh, you know, other reporters really haven't even followed. Uh, it's It's absolutely wild to me that, like, we can be talking about you know, essentially the most well-known criminal in Edmonton and the EPS and like what's being alleged here. And it's just like, oh, well, you know, some people looked into it and they didn't find anything. And it's like, okay, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into part four uh, uh, in Janice Johnson's series. The headline here is how a stolen police badge raised concerns about Abdullah Shah and his connections with the Edmonton police. And this is really the like heart of the, the like, you know, quote unquote, corruption allegations. And um, and I'm just going to quote directly from the piece again, just like I did in the first one particular relationship that raised concerns for Detective Dan Behills was between Shaw, also known as Karma Pervez, and now retired Superintendent Ed McIsaac. Behills formally raised those concerns twice with Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee, first in March 2019 and again in January 2021 after Behills leaked information to CBC News about the investigation into Shaw. This is a direct quote uh, that from a report that Behills wrote to McPhee. 
It is my belief that Superintendent McIsaac has participated in a protracted relationship which, with Shaw, which has either impeded or otherwise prevented thorough criminal investigations where they otherwise have been warranted, said Hills in a March 22, 2019 report to Chief McPhee. In an email to CBC News uh, in August of this year, McIsaac vehemently denied all of Hills' accusations, calling it, quote, a theme designed by a suspended, disgruntled employee. When asked about the allegations, Shaw's lawyer suggested in an email to CBC News that B. Hills had a, quote, apparent vendetta, unquote, against McIsaac, and that the allegations about McIsaac under- undermine B. Hills' credibility and raise questions about his fitness for duty. What follows is a direct quote from Abdullah Shah's lawyer. As far as my clients are aware, Ed McIsaac has always acted with integrity, and any suggestion that any of my clients have benefited from any corruption, quote, unquote, or other improper co- conduct by Mr. McIsaac or any other EPS officer is blatantly untrue. Okay, okay, so let's just stop for a second. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's take a moment to just realize what we just read. This is Abdullah Shah's lawyer. This is the lawyer for one of the most notorious criminals in Edmonton, essentially defending the honor and integrity of, of a now-retired superintendent of a cop. Like, does that jump out at you? <laughs> Like, I think it's weird because it's almost as if defending his integrity puts the integrity of uh, Hills in question. And by doing that, you know, somehow makes for um, a better position for Shaw. But at the same time, it does. Yeah, it strikes as very strange and, and very confusing as to why this is even necessary. But it's only necessary because of all of these things that have been brought into the public by Hills, which are, again, serious accusations. And what gets to me, too, is um, this idea of a protracted relationship, this, like, long-term, supposedly, you know, unnecessary relationship between the superintendent, which, you know, if you're a superintendent, you're, you've been a police officer for, you know, more than a decade. Yeah. You're wearing a white shirt. You got like, you know, chevrons on your shoulders or whatever, right? Yeah. You're, you're a very senior, uh, police officer. And then you have a a detective who is being called a quote, uh, no, a A suspended disgruntled employee. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There you go. So it's, it's, it's kind of strange how, how these allegations are being thrown in and and, and makes you really wonder um, where the truth lies. So so further down, we get into the details of this protracted relationship between Shaw and McIsaac. But this jumped out at me so much that I had to ask a Chief McPhee about it. And so uh, every month there's an Edmonton Police Commission meeting. Um, you know, last Thursday of every month, anyone can, as a member of the public, can go and get five minutes. I went as a member of the media. There's a section uh, of the agenda that's dedicated to media inquiries. And I essentially just read this quote back to Chief McPhee. And I said, hey, Chief McPhee, do, do you think that this is good for the reputation of the Edmonton Police Service, that Abdullah Shaw's lawyer is defending the honor and integrity of your now retired former downtown superintendent? <laughs> and... Uh, how would you describe Chief McPhee's reaction, Omar? You were on that. You were on that uh, meeting as well. Yeah, of course. This was a Zoom meeting, and and just to paint the picture, there was like kind of a U-shaped desk with uh, different, you know, police administrators or officers kind of sitting across from it, and a camera as far as it could be from the actual desk, kind of pointing at this, you know, yeah, Chief Dale McPhee, and. Um, 
yeah, I guess from the tone of his voice, I could clearly see that, you know, he wasn't very happy to have heard that question. And I think was like uh, maybe uh, a little bit frustrated and angered by uh, the, uh, uh, I guess, insinuation um, that is being made, at least uh, insinuation by the question, but more poignantly um, by the quote that is uh, from Abdullah Shah's lawyer. I think that is probably what um, what might strike him as um, not that great. Yeah, he was angry, and he uh, essentially launched into a furious denial that anything improper had ever happened. He essentially, quote, I mean, he has never given a quote to Janice Johnson or the media about this matter at all. And all he did in his answer to me, which, again, didn't answer the question at all, which is, like, is this good for the reputation of the EPS that this is happening? He essentially just launched... Uh, chapter and verse, like clearly rehearsed into like, look, ACERT has looked into this. Look, uh, the the CPS anti corruption unit has looked into it, and nobody has any found anything. There's no nothing to see here. Blah 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 blah. And like he just kind of like went down all of the like groups that have looked into it, and as opposed to like actually answering the question. Mm-hmm. And also like doubled down on this whole idea of, and I'm not sure if this was after you asked him to ask the question again or before. But in one of these moments, I think doubled down on his own personal or maybe his own, you know, you know, ability in this like representational position as someone who follows the law and, you know, respects the process of the law, which I think we can go into a long conversation about how a lot of that really is not only unnecessary, but I think paints this picture that, you know, there's somehow people who are outside of the law as if, you know, his whole job and duty and all these thousands of employees job isn't to like you know violently enforce everyone being under this system but and yeah, unfortunately besides we, the point unfortunately we don't have a recording of, of the interaction but I, I remember at the very end of it too mcphee was essentially intimating that like i had it out for cops and like you know yeah that was interesting too you know that like yeah. everything i say into is, is always paints cops in a negative light and it's like <laughs> I am like literally reading you a quote written by another reporter yeah. asking you, I mean, okay, okay, to be fair, it's a, it's a loaded question, but it's not my job as a journalist to not ask you not loaded questions as a, as a police chief. And so, uh, yeah. Especially in an environment that has been historically incredibly generous and very charitable to almost anything that the police department has to say about themselves. And it has gone out of their way. And when I'm, I'm talking about journalists and reporters in this city, specifically Edmonton, Alberta, yes. Um, yeah, has gone out of their way to positively portray basically everything that the police does. And now that there are criticisms and now that there are you know, and not to say that there was never criticism, but I think predominantly it's been positive coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the propaganda machine is, you know, an incredibly well-developed, strong, you know, multi-headed Hydra. But I mean, that's not the purpose of this podcast is to do essentially media crit on propaganda. But you definitely you definitely see it in in. I mean, Dale McPhee has got aggravated with me before when I have asked him pointed questions. And so it, it, this is this is the uh, a continuing theme. But I do I do want to get into the details on the relationship between retired superintendent and McIsaac and Shaw because they are like Janice Johnson's reporting is really good. So so let's get back into it. So on March 8th, 2019, during the Project Fisk investigation, Beheels discovered Shaw and McIsaac had recently communicated with each other. Nine days earlier, detectives had seized a cell phone as part of an investigation into allegations of conspiracy to commit an indictable offense, aggravated assault, leveled against Shaw. 
Beehills wrote in his 2019 report to McPhee. The phone logs revealed that in mid-afternoon on February 26, 2019, Shaw called McIsaac and the two men spoke for just under two minutes. Five minutes later, Shaw texted two images to McIsaac. The photos were of a police badge that had been reported stolen in November 2018, along with the affected officer's police identification card. And there's a bit more kind of context in this story, but I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Beehills showed the text messages and phone log to another detective who then approached McIsaac. A police report obtained by CBC News shows McIsaac told the detective he did not act on the information about the stolen property because he no longer worked in the downtown division. I advised Mr. Shaw that I was no longer in charge of the downtown division, and if he had any information to assist the Edmonton Police Service, there were numerous other ways to report and communicate and not to report through me, McIsaac further explained to CBC News in a September email. Beheels wrote to McPhee in his March 2019 report that he found it troubling that the phone messages between Shaw and McIsaac did not prompt an immediate investigation into the discovery of the stolen badge. The badge incident was not the first time Shaw had told police about found items. <laughs> between March 2017 and July 2018, Shaw reported other found items to McIsaac, including a Transport Canada badge, explosives, and a duffel bag full of Edmonton Fire Department equipment. When asked for an explanation, McIsaac told CBC News, quote, I believe Mr. Shaw understood that certain pieces of properties should be turned over to the Edmonton Police Service. Okay, so like, let's just take a minute here. A stolen badge is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Cops freak the fuck out about stolen. They freak the fuck out about like stolen like jackets and like business cards and shit. Mm-hmm. Like I, I got, a, I get all the emails. Like you know, my email gets everything from the EPS, and they sent out like an an alert about like I think a stolen jacket, stolen bulletproof vest. Yeah, like like they get they really aggravate and and justifiably so. Like if if you're in possession of a stolen uh, police badge, like you could do all sorts of like wild shit if you were if you had bad intentions right yeah impersonating a police officer is uh, unfortunately something that people have done in canada specifically and there's been multiple pretty heinous crimes that have taken place against against police officers but also against citizens by people who yeah either collect steal you know fabricate impersonate uh police and then use that you know veil to yeah commit acts of abuse so it, it can be very serious and i understand why you know not investigating or not trying to find this stuff might raise some red flags so the superintendent of the now now not the superintendent of the down down division just just superintendent ed mckisaac gets this text message with a picture of a stolen police badge and he's like well you know eh, yeah i'm busy there's other people to take care of that thing <laughs> It's like, I mean, I can see why Beehills, this, this raised alarm bells for Beehills, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it, it like, it, it gets, it gets even this relationship. There's more details. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is again, quoting from the Janice Johnson reporting. When CBC news asked McIsaac about his relationship with Shaw, the retired officer said he was simply doing his job. Quote, while I was the superintendent in downtown division, my role was to engage with the community, foster professional relationships, and assist the community ethically and professionally, McIsaac wrote in a September email to CBC News. Like numerous other citizens in the community, I had a professional relationship with Shaw, and to suggest anything more is incorrect. But of course, this was not the first time that Ed McIsaac and Abdullah Shaw were in touch with each other. 
In November 20, 2017, McIsaac authorized and supervised Project Domino, an undercover and wiretap operation into alleged drug activity by Shaw and other persons of interest. The superintendent, in this case, Ed McIsaac, he approved the staffing and the budget for this, uh, this operation. The wiretap on Shaw's cell phone revealed on November 29th, 2017, that McIsaac phoned Shaw at 4.03 p.m. The call lasted 25 seconds. The same day, Shaw called McIsaac another eight times between 4.57 p.m. and 7.21 p.m. McIsaac called Shaw twice in that same period. All the calls lasted less than a minute. The final exchange was a phone call made by the police superintendent to Shaw that lasted almost seven minutes. Project Domino was suspended the next day. I'm just going to repeat that and underline it again. After repeated text messages, phone calls, and email, or text messages and phone calls between a superintendent and one of the most well-known criminals in Edmonton, an investigation into this criminal was suspended the next day. Does that uh, strike you as strange? Yeah, it's, uh, again, it fits in within these serious allegations. If you believe what B. Hills is claiming, that there is this, you know, long protracted relationship and that there are these, you know, these there are these crimes supposedly not being investigated because of these relationships supposedly um it's pretty damning and a wiretap i don't know if they actually got to hear what was being said on these you know less than a minute long phone calls um but yeah it it just raises a lot of different red flags and it, it makes it pushes to just like um it pushes me to just ask all these questions to get more answers because quite honestly, it's hard to, to paint a very clear picture other than, yeah, these, these kind of obtuse allegations. And I think another thing too, that's interesting is, um, yeah, what investigations go through, how far do they go through and, and why? Um, because it seems like sometimes things are being investigated. For example, if it's like a police misconduct case and it's going through ACERT, um, or going through, yeah, like the other one went through the uh, Calgary Police Department um, that investigated the misconduct that B. Hills claimed. Would that have been an, a, an investigation that was, had a clear, you know, end to it that was already predetermined? Um, or, you know, if you choose to even start an investigation, do you have to start it with this like open, clear mind? Um, yeah, at this point, I'm just rambling and going through, you know, all these possibilities, but. But yeah. so the relationship between Shaw and McIsaac, it's, it is explored even further within the article. Uh, they had the kind of relationship where if Abdullah Shah was being pulled over by a cop, he would call up McIsaac. Quote from Janice Johnson's reporting again. B. Hills also alleged McIsaac relationship, McIsaac's relationship with Shaw was noticed by other officers. Officers conducting vehicle stops on Shaw would often approach the driver's window to find Pervez that is Abdullah Shah, on the phone with or threatening to call McIsaac, Beheels wrote in his January 2021 report. An example of that kind of interaction was later noted in a May 2021 decision by the Law Enforcement Review Board, a quasi-judicial body which hears appeals about police decisions on complaints about the actions of police officers. It was looking into a complaint Shaw had lodged against a constable who pulled his vehicle over in February 2017. Quote, it is not disputed that Shaw telephoned and was speaking with McIsaac on his cell phone during part of the incident, the LRB said in a decision. So again. And I think it's important also to go back to what McIsaac said. Um, 
yeah, direct. Just quote. doing my professional duty. Yeah, <laughs> just doing my professional duty, um, and you know, trying to foster professional relationships and assist the community ethically and professionally. So, in 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 your professional duties as a police officer, dealing with the community in a professional way, does when a community member get pulled over by another police officer, does that give them the right to call you and supposedly again? Um, <sighs> I guess like just just imagine anyone else in that context. Imagine Omar Salafu <laughs> getting pulled over by a cop and saying, "Hey, other uh, cop, I, I've got uh, this other cop on the phone." Like what? What the? F- yeah, or or, <laughs> or 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 threatening to call another police officer. Yeah, I'm gonna call the superintendent of the downtown division if what you know, like what's the what is the send? What is the actual like quote that uh, you give? to a police officer in that context like i yeah it's again yeah the the things aren't uh thinking right now it just doesn't really add up when it comes to uh what what's going on here with uh with all these different allegations so and and there is a history here uh of abdullah shah having inappropriate relationships with members of the edmonton police service and uh, there's a 26, uh, 2006 Edmonton Journal story uh, with the headline "Officer Retires Before Facing Inquiry," that I think is worth bringing up. Um, Staff Sergeant Alan Pitts retired in November 20, 2006 before facing 23 separate counts of insubordination and a single count of deceit. These were police act charges uh, that stemmed from Pitts accessing a police database, uh, CPIC, nearly 250 times for non-police non-police purposes. It's also alleged that Pitts shared this information with an unauthorized third party. And then later on uh, in the story, there is an incident where Pitts, according to internal investigations investigators, went to a neighborhood in Eastwood at the behest of Abdullah Shah. So there are never any criminal code violations here. Uh, So because these were all police act charges and then he retired, uh, the matter was dropped. And the relationship between uh, Staff Sergeant Pitts and Abdullah Shah, then known as some other name, was never explored. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, again, again, very interesting and very difficult to wrap your head around because we don't even know what he looked for. We barely even have an idea of who this third party he shared the information with. We do know that he had this relationship with Abdullah Shah. So, and yeah, like you said, he got off on all the charges because he just decided to retire. So in the face of everything, all of these things are kind of, again, left up in the air. And Maybe, be, or sorry, go ahead. And because McIsaac retired, he was not subject to any internal disciplinary investigation either. Uh, however, there were no findings of criminality or corruption against McIsaac uh, by the CPS anti, the Calgary Police Services Anti-Corruption Unit. But, I mean, that that's simply one thing. But the, the EPS is own internal thing never investigated Ed McIsaac because he retired but again you know just a regular normal everyday relationship between the former superintendent of the downtown division and Edmonton's most well-known criminal if anything I think it's also worth mentioning how invested should the public be in these happenings because theoretically we're we're all paying for this like we pay you know over six figures for almost all of these employees to have these jobs where they, yeah, interact with the public, oftentimes with people who are being charged with crimes. And um, 
Yeah, it seems like there is a lot of um, allegations of misconduct going on. That, again, we're sponsoring this. We're paying for this. And I think when all of this goes down, yeah, like you said, people retire, people leave. Um, it doesn't seem like there is an investment, at least from a lot of the public, to um, either critically challenge this, critically question it, um, try to get more transparency or more understanding of even what's going on. And, um, yeah, if if only for the uh, financial burden, which it seems like these days that's what a lot of people seemingly only care about, if only for that, then it seems like this should be looked at further. But Again, I, I would encourage you to read this piece. We will link to it in the show notes. Read it with your own eyes and, and tell me what you think. Like literally DM me or put it on Twitter, at me on Facebook, send me an email. Like read part four, you know, the 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 part that's about the with the headline about the police the bit about the police badge in the headline i'll put it in the show notes tell me what you think and tell me what you think is happening between former superintendent ed mckisaac and abdullah shah part four is the 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 strongest piece in my mind but we're almost to the end of it part five is a bit of a wrap-up piece you know it uh, looks into the multiple civil lawsuits against the against the edmonton police service that were filed by associates of abdullah shah as well as the kind of fallout for detective dan behills um, you know, um, of course, you know, it goes into detail around these defam defamation lawsuits that were filed by Abdullah Shah, uh, sorry, Abdullah Shah Associates against the EPS, I should be clear. Um, I mean, it, it gives us a bit of a wrap up on what Shah is up to. He's still living in his Riverbend home. Uh, he has recovered from the gunshot wound to his face. Uh, in August, he, uh, Abdullah Shah finished serving eight months of house arrest. Uh, he re remains on probation after pleading guilty in December 2020 to asking remand center inmates to assault a former of, of employee of his. Uh, he remains on probation. And there was a great little detail pulled out by Johnston. And it is worth kind of, you know, you kind of touched on it here. Like, why should people care about this? Like, wh what's the what's the broader public in implication of this? And we, we brought it up a bit in the first episode, which is that like 10% of all like homicides in Edmonton in, in like a three year period, like between 2016 and 2019 happened in properties that were owned or were connected to Abdullah Shah. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you read the, the other parts about, you know, the victims of Shah. Uh, and during a March, 2019 bail hearing crown prosecutor, James Stewart told the judge that Shah has lived a quote, a life of pervasive criminality and committed committing coordinated violent offenses in this community. That's a crown prosecutor saying that on the record in a bail hearing. I mean, it's worth reminding ourselves kind of what the stakes are in this story. And the fact that still, again, Shaw is still doing Shaw things, presumably, um, you know, the implications for Dr. Detective B Hills are still kind of being worked out. Uh, you know, the story says he still stands by his decision to leak all of the uh, investigative documents to CBC. He is, uh, you know, he's been suspended uh, with pay for leaking these investigation details to CBC. It's worth mentioning that uh, Constable Ben Todd was not suspended with pay after he kicked the hole in that kid's head. Yeah, I don't know how the procedure works for that. <laughs> I feel like uh, they might need to look at their policies a little bit. That might be a good idea. But yeah. Man, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, and Chief McPhee has still not said anything specifically about these allegations that were raised in Janice Johnson's reporting, aside from saying, look, CPS and ACER looked into it and nothing, nothing, and they found nothing. Um, so again, like, you know, 
Uh, I think you look around, you read these five stories. We've talked about it for like an hour and a half now. You know, what did, what did we learn? What do, what do you take away from this, this series of, of really top-notch investigative journalism based on some painstaking police work over years that was done by B Heels, right? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, if anything, one of the things I think of the most is that independent actors within a largely, um, let's just say, uh, problematic system uh, can only do so much. And in his attempts to investigate Shaw, it seems like B. Hills was trying to act independently and follow some kind of, I guess, maybe this might be a stretch, but moral code, whether or not, you know, you want to call the law that or whatever charges he levied against Shaw. But, um, yeah, it seems like the larger apparatus or the larger system of the Edmonton police and um, what they have to offer, um, yeah, wasn't necessarily ready. Or, you know, you could go a step further and say that, um, yeah, things were nefariously done, allegedly, to prevent these investigations from leading to charges, which might have stuck in court and might have seen um, actual justice or punishment levied towards um, Shaw. So, yeah, I feel like, if anything, it just goes to show that, like, yeah, if you're if you're trying to, you know, quote-unquote, do the right thing within this apparatus or within, you know, other systems similar to this, um, I feel like it can be futile. I, f- I feel like after reading all these stories, recording these two podcasts sitting with these stories thinking about them for weeks it's i feel i am going crazy like it, it, it when this story came out no one cared you know i hung on every story but I, I guess you know i i was the only one serious allegations of corruption at the highest levels of the eps were met with essentially a no comment and an oh yeah we looked into that and we found nothing and then meanwhile three years of investigation into shaw has turned up no charges directly from those investigations and shaw's doing what shaw does this is this is wild to me in some ways also, it's interesting to see how the communications or sorry, it's interesting to see how the police communicates with the public in almost a patronizing way that everything is tightly controlled and the messaging is done through their official channels and you have a right to know this and you don't have a right to know that. And um, but in reality, all of this, like you said, like 10 percent of people died or were murdered in this guy's properties. He has long, extensive career um that spans of criminality of yeah. criminality essentially um so but then to also receive the same like tight messaging um and like very defensive or yeah even silence oftentimes from the police um i think is yeah it's it contradicts um i think the kind of values that the public deserves from this institution that yeah we pay an exorbitant amount of money towards and, and this is this is what I keep coming back to is is was this incompetence or was this corruption? And so, you know, there's a truism out there that says, you know, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to just just laziness or incompetence. Right. And, you know, I, I'm inclined to just say, hey, look, they looked into this guy for three years. They raided his properties. They raided his house. They did this, that and the other thing. And then nothing. Poof zero charges and at the very very least it is a 
massive waste of resources. And whether the case was blown up because of some type of error or bungling or some huge fuck up on the side of the EPS or whether it, because it was, it was people within the EPS protecting Shaw. I mean, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again, we're left with more questions than we have answers. The reporting by Janice Johnson was, was excellent and I'm glad that it is out there mm-hmm. and I'm glad that we were getting a chance to talk about it and discuss it. But it's so unsatisfying that that these blockbuster stories come out and just no one gives a shit. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 and, and in some ways, I feel like it's also because they don't necessarily have to, because if 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 they aren't directly impacted by um, like violence on the street or um, the like, yeah, the the ramifications of um, drug use and predatory, um, you know, situations. Um, and, and yeah, if they also are, you know, feel largely comfortable and protected by, um, police, then yeah, there's, there's no real reason I think for a lot of people to challenge it. The problem becomes that, um, the reality is that there is obviously a reason it's that, this is happening in their community at their doorstep, you know, in their so-called city, you know? So I feel like just that simple fact is enough to, you know, yeah. The, the only person people to actually care about the yeah, only person know. who has faced any consequences for this is detective Dan B. Hills, who has been suspended with pay and is uh, currently under investigation uh, yeah. for police act uh, charges, presumably that again, speaks to a culture within the Edmonton police where you can look into one of Edmonton's well-known well, well criminals for three years. You raid his home, you raid his properties. You know, in concert with the CRA, like the Canada Revenue Agency was involved. They trumpeted that involvement or when they were doing these raids. And then to get nothing is, is so incredible to me. And like, I don't have a, like a neat way to tie this up into a bow. Just like, was it incompetence? Was it corruption? I don't know. But the fact that, again, the only person who's faced any consequences for this is a, is a, an 11 year detective, 11 year veteran of the police force who was a detective. He's that he's the one who's been suspended without pay as opposed to whoever it was that blew up the case. Like what happened? Mm -hmm. Was there no case? You looked into him for three years. You rated nothing. That's that's the story we're left with. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is unsatisfying, but I am very grateful uh, for Janice, to Janice Johnson for mm-hmm. doing these stories. And, um, you, you know, I, I think it's worth taking just a minute at the end of this uh, podcast, because I still think we have a bit of time to talk about where we are at on some other police brutality cases, as well as on the old defund the police file. Mm-hmm. So I'll run through these really fast and feel free to jump in, uh, Abdul. So uh, Dylan Aweed was a EPS officer. He was charged with assault uh, last month. He This was the cop who took part in the vicious beatdown of Kyle Parkhurst. This was all caught on camera. This was the uh, – there was some guy who was uh, – I think he was doing meth. He was on a bit of a bender, and he had stolen a car or a truck, and he had been chased into a like a residential parking lot. Hmm. And he had run away from the cops. And they had boxed him in in this parking lot and 
the cops got him out of the truck, pistol whipped him, tased him, elbowed, elbow smashed him to the head, kicked him multiple times while he was on the ground, and finally ran him into the car while he had his hands behind his head, his his back handcuffed. And this was all caught on camera because not only did the building have security tapes, but like people are just out on their balconies. It's like the summertime. People are like, <laughs> this. Um, you know, just want to flag that. Uh, there's the curious case of Constable Joe Spear. Uh, this is an EPS officer who's done a lot of forward-facing media work. He has appeared in the media a lot. He is a boat cop. Uh, he's a part of the Marine unit. He was charged with uh, attempting to obstruct justice and commissioning a false affidavit. And the reason why I'm flagging this one is because these charges came out of EPS. They, this investigation did not go through ACERT, which hmm. is very strange. Uh, something like this would typically go through ACERT, but for whatever reason, it has not. And, I, I mean, one possible... Uh, explanation is that i mean if you do it internally it's not going to take three years like if you're going to if you're going to go through a cert it's going to take three years yeah. whereas if you do it internally you can you can actually put some resources on it and get it done faster mm-hmm. and then finally we have all the, we have the case of, of constable ben todd uh, and this is the officer who uh kicked a indigenous teenager in the head so hard that uh he now has a tennis ball sized hole in his skull he needs surgery to fix it like to have like a metal plate to protect his like brain and uh we uh discovered that constable ben todd was a an sro a school resource officer and he was working with teenagers as recently as 2020 and uh that's kind of the roundup of the like that's like the police brutality roundup for eps um and then finally zeros zeros for cops uh you know budget deliberations for the city start soon they've already started in calgary where the police chief down there has you know it really pains him he's he had to think really long and hard about it but he did have to ask for a few million dollars in order to hire more cops um and uh i've gotten some scuttlebutt that um the uh body cameras despite the city despite ebs bad-mouthing body cameras years ago they did a pilot uh, that body cameras are are going to be a capital budget ask in this that's next budget cycle don't have any uh, intel on what we're going to see for their asked increase but it's worth remembering that the committee the task force that was struck after the murder of george floyd by minneapolis police recommended freezing this the police budget for five years and that by freezing the police budget for five years you would free up 260 million dollars to spend on other things that are not cops that would keep us safe that's a lot of money. And that's just freezing the, an increase. Like, that's that's not even actively defunding the police. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's framed, you know, and, like, where people are placed within the discourse, you know, because it's like you ask for a freeze and you see the result of that, which is, like, I think pretty miraculous. And I feel like people still feel like you're pushing the envelope a lot where it's like, damn, not even asking for what we were actually asking for, just asking for less money to just be like pumped and pumped and pumped and pumped into this institution. Yeah. Stop giving stop giving them like whatever they ask for capital wise yeah. every year. And then like stop giving them like an extra 3% every year or whatever. I mean, when Iveson was mayor, he had essentially negotiated in like locked in increases for EPS. So they didn't even have to talk about it. They didn't even have to think about it when they were doing budget. It was just like, Oh yeah, you get this percentage every year locked in thing. We don't even think about it. Then again, it also shows the special relationship that the police holds with various other institutions. Well, with their funders, right? Like yeah. the city, the city ultimately, again, it's when we're at, whenever we're talking about defunding the police, 
it is always key to remember that the biggest line item in any city's budget is always going to be police. And that downward pressure on that budget helps literally everyone else. If you're a worker who works for the city, if you're a property owner, like this is why your property taxes go up is because the police ask for and get whatever, usually whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. And so um, as we enter these budget deliberations, I would encourage you to reach out to your counselor and uh, and ask how they feel about the very entirely too reasonable proposal of freezing the police budget for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, worth worth your time, worth your effort. And um, yeah, I'm very, very curious to see what's going to happen with this uh, upcoming budget. And I think that's the end of our pod. How can people follow along with your work? What are you working on right th- these days? Uh, it's, it's plug your pluggables. Uh, yeah, I'm working on um, the next season of this, uh, of Is This For Real, the podcast I'm working on. So if you want to check that out, you can visit our website at Is This For Real ca or find us on twitter it's the same name but with a ca at the end of it um and yeah that's basically it i i sometimes write for the progress report um doing different things for other publications but that's the that's the kind of main thing i'm working on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes uh i'm eagerly awaiting season two of is this for real and uh and folks uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna let you in on a little secret if you want to get in before i start asking you for money even more it is, it is fundraising season. Essentially, between now and Christmas, uh, we do have to raise a bunch of money in order to be a viable operation. So if you like this podcast, if you like listening to it, if you learned something, it's very easy. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Put in your credit card, $5, $10, $15 a month, whatever you can afford. We really appreciate it. We are going to be asking for money a lot over the next six weeks. So if you just want to just tune out that part of every podcast and you just feel good about yourself, just, just donate now and you can just, you can just skip over this. Just hit the little plus 15 plus 30 on your podcast thing and you're good to go. Um, if you have any notes, thoughts or comments, things you think I need to hear, I'm very easy to reach. I am on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney and you can reach me by email at uh, Duncan K at progress, Thanks to Jim story for editing this podcast. Thanks to cosmic Famu communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.